0: All right. Wonderful. So we were here a couple of weeks ago and we were going over Psalm one and we're going to go over Psalm one again. So we're going to try to finish. We got to verse two. So hopefully we get to verse four. I really want to finish, but I know that it's just so packed and we all want to talk about it. And so we can take our time. And so turn to Psalm one. And as you're doing that, I'm going to go ahead and just begin to pray for us one more time. Ask the Lord to bless our fellowship together, okay? Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this wonderful day that you've given us. Uh, your son has purchased all of these mercies that are bestowed on us this day. Uh, he bought them with his blood on the cross. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us and assist us to learn from your word today, Lord. Help us to grow in grace and knowledge of your word. Help us to uh, assist one another in that grace and growing in edification. And Lord, I pray that you would use me today and, and, and Lord, I pray that you would sanctify me and uh, guide me by your spirit, Lord, and, 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 and help me to teach your word truthfully, Lord. Help me to, to guide your people today as I go through this text, Lord. I am utterly needful, Lord, of your help. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Psalm one. Okay, so I just kind of want to do, maybe we can do a little bit of a recap. So last time we, we, we said that the book of Psalms, right, is, a, is a, 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 a composite book. It's made up of 150 Psalms, right? It's made up in uh, five different sections. And when you were coming into the temple of God, we said last time that when you come into the temple of God and you open the word of God, you were confronted with two books really at the beginning. And uh, this is what some, some some scholars and theologians have called the two poetic pillars of the Psalms: Psalm One and Psalm Two. So when you come into the temple of God, Old Testament saints and us in us today, New Testament saints, we're coming into the temple of God, opening the Word of God, and we're confronted with Psalm One and Psalm Two. And these Psalms, strategically placed in this specific place at the beginning of the book, were to grab your attention, right? Therefore, introspection. They are to examine your heart and to examine your soul before God. What is the, the current condition of your heart? And this is, the, this is the reality that people are confronted with when they open the book of Psalms. In order to get to Psalm 3 and 4, you have to go through Psalm 1 and 2. And so, what do Psalm 1 and 2 teach us? So we know that Psalm 1 is, is what we could call a Torah Psalm. Torah, uh, and it's, and it's, de- it's derivative word where it's derived from. It means to teach. So it teaches the instruction of God. It teaches on wisdom. It's not just a, a word it's, that, that's so stiff to mean only the law of God as we see it, but throughout the New Testament, Old Testament, uh, you can see it being uh, related to many different things. Uh, wisdom, prophecy, poetry, history, all of these different things, the law is is being regarded as really addressing many different things. And it speaks of a, a wholesale approach uh, to a life that comes from a full apprehension of the will of God. It's God's revelation to human beings as those made in the image of God. And this is Psalm 1. We know it's not the first Psalm, right? So who wrote Psalm 90? We talked about this last time. Moses wrote Psalm 90. Now that is the really the, the first Psalm that we have, right? And it's placed at number 90. So that in, in history, in time, Moses wrote this Psalm. It's Psalm 90. So the first Psalm is placed here evangelistically, Right? It's to draw those people who are outside of the fellowship of God into the fellowship with God. This is what it's this is what it's made to do. And so I, I I took you through this and I showed you how the first Psalm it begins with how blessed is the man. Right? How blessed is the man. And you see how strategically Psalm two is placed here because it ends with, in a sense, indeed. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. These are almost bookends because God wants to get your attention and He wants to elevate your vision on two things primarily. The first Psalm is exalting God's Word, right? It's exalting God's law, the law of God. The second Psalm is exalting God's Messiah son. And you see that in Psalm 2, that God wants us to kiss the son and give uh, and, and obey the sun and give worship to the sun. And this is what we see in these first two books. So, I want to do this. I didn't get a chance to do this last time. Let's see if I have the, uh, I want to use this board a little bit because I think it'll help us as we kind of break up this book into some sections. So what we do have is this. If I could if I could kind of divide this book up for you or this uh this this psalm up for you, I would say that there is verses one through three. One through three is speaking about um it's speaking about the blessed man. Right? Speaking about the blessed man. And so it's going to tell you about his spiritual condition, the exercises, his lifestyle, uh, who he is. And it's going to, and it's going to show you, uh, the blessings. Uh, it's going to tell you how this man is blessed and what is the spiritual condition of his soul. And then you're going to have verses four through six. And this is talking about, you know, how God speaks of cursing and blessing throughout the throughout the whole council of god and this is going to tell you about the cursed man the blessed man and the cursed man and that's what you're going to see so it's contrasting the character of the godly from that of the wicked and discloses the future and it, it anticipates the future dwelling place of those who do not know God, who have not uh, repented and are not serving God, are not worshiping God. So verse one defines who the blessed person is negatively, right? It's going to tell us what the godly person doesn't do, right? Describing the godly person is going to tell us what he doesn't do. And verse two is going to describe the godly person positively. Right? So it's going to, sh- it's going to show us what the godly person does do. Okay? Alan Ross says it like, he kind of sums up Psalm 1. He says, Psalm 1 begins by reminding the reader that those who order their lives by God's Word will find success in this life and in the life to come. But those who reject God's Word have no hope of escaping His judgment. Okay. So we'll get into Psalm 1 here. Now that we have just kind of a little bit of uh, a little bit of structure in here, actually, I might leave that up. So we get into the first Psalm. I just want to read Psalm 1:1. It says, "How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers." And so we kind of went through this last time a little bit. On what does it mean to walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but the first word, the word blessed, right, we said that this, this, when you, whenever the Bible really says, blessed are this, or blessed is he, there aren't any verbs uh, that come in that statement, right? It's more of a pronouncement of who the person is that he is blessed. And in this and in this instance in speaking of how blessed is the man who is right with God, who enjoys fellowship with God, he delights and finds satisfaction in God because he has peace with God. That's what it's that's what it's suggesting here. How blessed is the man, right? And then it describes and it describes him negatively. And so why must we keep from and guard against the way of the wicked? Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. That's what 1 Corinthians 5, 6 says. And so we're going to look at this. As you look at Psalm 1, you see a process. We went through this last time. I'm just going to kind of hit a couple of things here, and then I'm going to kind of open it up a little bit. But as you see in Psalm 1, you can see... In a sense, there's a process of apostasy in this text, or what happens to men and women who are living in sin. They go from bad to worse. And that's what you see in this text. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the, in the counsel of the wicked. So you have, you have this walking here. And then you have, then you have standing. And then you have sitting. And you have a process here of basically a beginning. Ooh, that's ugly. I want to make sure you can read this. I know, I want to be a little, I want to write a little slower. So you have a beginning, a middle, and you have an end. one. Oh. I'm just making sure you guys are awake. You're awake? Yes, brother. I was looking at this uh side the Oh, absolutely. So, a beatitude literally comes from a word in the Latin beatitudo and it, and it means the exact same thing as this right here. So, he is pronouncing blessings upon uh, upon the a certain privileged position of a spiritual condition, a man who's been made right with God. He is blessed. And this word blessed here is written in the plural. It literally means blessednesses, uh, an abundance of blessing. It's like all the, all the blessings of God poured out on you is what this word means in the Hebrew. The blessednesses, oh, the blessednesses of the man who is right with God and enjoys peace with God. Uh, by virtue of his union with God's Messiah Son, that's what this is saying. So this is what we have, though, just in the first. And I'm gonna we're gonna kind of go through this kind of quickly because we went over this a little bit last time, but I want to get to more of it today. So this is what we see. How did we right? We said that they go from bad to worse, brother. Sorry, I had a quick is yeah. There a difference between blessed and blessed, in how you say it or is it the same in... uh, Same thing. Okay. Same thing. You can say it either. You can say it either way. Um, yeah, we can. Uh, you, you, it's just a, a difference of pronoun- a pronunciation, you know. Um, so we said that in this little stage of of apostasy, walking, standing, sitting, right? There's there's motions here: a beginning, middle, and an end, right? From these uh, moving from bad to worse. And so, how did we define walking in the counsel of the wicked? What does that counsel mean? How did we define that last time? Some of you are here. I know some of you are here. This is how, this is what we said. We said that walking in the counsel of the wicked was basically worldviews, right? Worldviews and beliefs, the advice of the ungodly. That's how we, that's how we defined that. And not only this, but standing in the path was the next thing we looked at, right? Standing in the path of sinners. And what we said about that one, the path, the way, is always speaking about lifestyle or behavior. So it begins with walking in the council, meaning it starts, it begins mentally, right, with world views and different beliefs creeping in. And then it begins to affect your life to where you're literally, you're walking and then you're listening to the worldviews and the and the and the beliefs of the wicked, right, and what they're telling you. You're walking and you're stopping to consider this, is what it's saying. You're stopping to consider, and then you say, "I think I like this," and I'm going to sit down. And this is where and this is the ending spot. And he said, "How cursed is the man, truly?" Uh, and this is what he gets in. So we have the blessed man and the cursed man verses 1 through 3 4 through 6 and we see this these movements from bad to worse a beginning a middle and end from walking standing and sitting and uh, and this becomes uh, so they're no longer just uh just taking in mentally their world views and beliefs um, but their lifestyle is being affected they're adopting this lifestyle and then they become scoffers mockers they literally partake and now they are not just like quietly just kind of checking this out, but they are loudly boasting in and loving sin. Yes? So, I guess you said standing would be like lifestyles, right? That's right. Standing in the path. So, but wouldn't that be sitting too? Would be like the end where your lifestyle is completely... Sure, sure. Yeah, there's a, there's a, it's a, it's kind of they overlap a little bit. There is a, it's kind of from you kind of see like a, a, a digression, you know, in this. I was going
1: to say it's, it's kind of like the, not not only are you doing it, but you are in agreement with it because you can certainly do some things that are contrary to your, uh, your profession. And still kind of feel just angst about it. And Mm. then the sitting is going to be like, okay, now
0: this is actually some good stuff to agree with. Right. So one of the difference is like the outward manifestation of it. It says, who sit in the seat of scoffers. Instead of just kind of trying this out, you're now actively opposing God. Instead of just kind of... Trying this out, you know, you're you're actually taking steps. Yes, sister.
1: Would you say that that is also the same as associating? Like First Corinthians five eleven, 11 says, but actually, I wrote to you not to
0: associate with any so-called brother, because the so-called brother is not a brother. Right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. No, I I think that's right. I think that uh this is this is talking about association. Uh, this is talking about, you know how, this is what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. What you see throughout the whole counsel of God is Yahweh distinguishing between two different kinds of people, two seeds, right? He's contas- He's contrasting two peoples, the ungodly, uh, the godly. He's always contrasting um, the way of the wicked with the way of the righteous, right? The narrow way, the broad way. and uh, And he's also contrasting the different destinies of the two. So this is what you see. This is in the Word of God everywhere. The two different trees, like you'll know them by their fruits, and so uh, which is what we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more. Uh, Rossi again says this. He says in these three descriptions of the of the unrighteous, there is a growing intensity, signifying that what that that what may start as a harmless bit of advice from an unbeliever, right? Starting here, what may start for one person as a harmless bit of advice may end up with a dangerous dangerously close connection to those who want to destroy the faith. And so to be sure, right? What we're not saying is this. We're not saying that uh that we aren't to be among the ungodly. You know, I wanted to make that clear. Last time we were kind of talking about that how when you come into the temple of God, What you're confronted with is the unbeliever. He's, if you want to be blessed, you have to submit to God, right? Give your life to him. And then there are those who have, who have done that by the grace of God. But when you come into the temple and you're hit with these, with these realities, God is telling you to completely leave, right? He's telling you to completely separate. What is the influence of these things on your life? And God tells us to flee from those things. Not that we aren't to be among them, right? So God tells us to be in the world, but not what? Of the world. world. That's right. Amen. So the godly rejects that which is in opposition to the word of God, whether it be worldviews, beliefs, behaviors that do not conform to biblical godliness, and people who mock God's truth, right? Blessed is the man who hates those things and loves the things of God, who loves the things of Christ. That's what we're saying. So walking in the counsel of the wicked, and also we want want to say this, that the word wicked does not refer to someone who is just particularly outwardly wicked, right? Not just saying that, but more generally to the ungodly. Uh, They can be the most pleasant person in the world, but they stand in unbelief. That's what it's talking about. You could have the nicest coworker, a nicest family member who truly loves you, but they remain guilty before God because they have not come to faith in God's Son. They have no share in God's everlasting covenant. This is what we're talking about. This is what the Hebrew word signifies. It's those outside of God's kingdom and outside of the fellowship of God's saints. So this is a question we have to ask ourselves. Who is influencing your life? Or what is influencing your life that could be detrimental to your relationship and communion or union with God? Right. So I say communion... Right, If you're a Christian, you have communion with God. And, and, and why is there a distance between you and God? Is there a distance between you, God? So the only Christians can have a, a direct communion to God beca- by virtue of their union. right? The union with God is, is, is what happens when you're justified in the eyes of God. You have peace with God and therefore you share fellowship with God. But those who do not have a union with God, who are not justified, what is keeping you from coming to God? Right? What is keeping you from coming to God? And what were some of the things that, right, we, what were some of the examples we talked about last time? About what are those influences that are around us that could either keep us from coming to God or keep us from entering into a, a more rich fellowship with God? Forms of, media. Forms of media. That's right. What else? Relationships that you have. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Amen some unhealthy relationships. What else? Sin in general. Sin in general, right? I mean, I put, I, I said this last time, books, movies, clothes, uh, workplaces, friends, family, unhealthy relationships, those things, the Old Testament saints were hit, hit with the exact same reality, right? And so are we too, as New Testament saints. And uh, can someone read Hebrews 12, 1, 2? This is a, a great response. to As, as Christians... In the world, brother Robert. Yeah. Twelve, and That's right.
1: Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the Author and perfecter of faith for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God.
0: Amen. Thank you, brother. Amen. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles, and let us run with endurance. Fixing our eyes on Christ. That's the most important part. We can't run aimlessly, but we have to run fixing our eyes on Christ. Go back to my psalm here. And so I, I'm trying not to be too redundant. I know we went over some of this last time. So that is really what we were just talking about is the counsel of the wicked, the different things that directly influence our lives, our minds, right? The, the, the worldviews and beliefs of the world can easily creep in. And what you have today, right, we have a postmodern uh, worldview, these different things that can easily, right, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough and can easily come and, 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 and take their place and grip on your mind. And so you have to hold every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's why we have to come before God's Word and be in it as it says and meditate on it. I'm gonna try to skip through some of this. We have so much to go through here. And so, Let's go here to verse, verse two. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. This is the positive description of the blessed man. This is what he does, uh, this is what he does do, what he delights in, right? What he keeps doing. And I put the, the, the blessed man has been graciously given the ability to delight in the law of the Lord. He's been, this is something you can't do on your own. That's one of the things I like to tell, like when I'm out and, 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 and either preaching or just sharing the gospel, I like to tell unbelievers, delight yourself in the Lord. And what they always tell me is, I can't. I don't know how to. You cannot, you, you cannot share. You cannot enjoy fellowship with God if you don't have a union with, you don't have a union. Uh, you, if you're not in Jesus Christ, you cannot enjoy fellowship. Right, that only comes by Christ, and so they literally have an inability to do so. Yes, brother. I have a, a
1: recent example of that. Uh, yesterday, the debate, and um, <clears throat> one of the reasons that was brought up about so the the title of the event was "Is God a Moral Monster of the Old Testament?" In the Old Testament, and what what came about uh, from the opposition was that. It, if, if we're basing morals and goodness on the well-being of people, um, and, and, I, and I caught on to that a little bit. And what I said was, well, wouldn't it be for your well-being, knowing what the Bible says about itself, knowing what God says about himself, and the condition of your soul before him, wouldn't it be in your best well-being to repent and believe in Jesus Christ? And I, I did this in front of everybody. And he goes, I can't. Mm. I can't do that. He would see right through me. I said, you're exactly right. Wow. It's amazing when confronted with that and how gracious actually God is to people, that he would be the one to change the heart. Mm. Wow.
0: Amen. That's exactly, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Does anybody have any questions? Okay. Okay, so last time we said this, how does a life of love for God's word become a reality in the soul of man? And we went to 1 Peter 1.23, right? But by the incorruptible seed of God, right? We have been born again by this, by the word of God is what it says. That's what gives us life. That's where we find life. And so this, literally this psalm is, is focusing on God's word, exalting God's word. And it tells us, not just in, so not just in in this psalm here, but it says this, it tells us to delight and to meditate on God's word. What does it mean to meditate? To pour over. John, did you say something? To think on. on? Amen. Amen. Anything else? I think, you know, it doesn't take, you take the Ten Commandments, it doesn't take long to go through them. But to meditate, to Hmm. think. Make it all through. I think that's, you know, that's meant to me, it is. Amen. Amen.
1: I, I had a question. Yeah. When it speaks about the law of the Lord in this particular context, is it speaking about the scriptures or mm. is it speaking about specifically his law of command?
0: I would say it's speaking about uh, the scriptures in their entirety. It doesn't necessarily say specifically. Yeah. Um,. I know that, uh, yeah, I, so I would say that. It doesn't say specifically, but I would say that it's speaking about, you know what Paul says. Paul says that um, that the law brings about wrath, right? He's talking about the, the condemnation of the law at that point. But then in Romans 7, he's going to say, he says, The law is holy and the commandment is holy and good and righteous. And so he's speaking about the condemnation of the law, and then after he has peace with God, how much he can enjoy the law and how much he can truly take delight in the law. Not delighting in that which is condemning him, but like the law in its entirety is truly a delight to him. It's food for his soul. Brothers, uh, Brother Beers. Brother Beers. <laughs> It's his, his covenant law, it's his instruction, his in-teaching. This word law, it literally means the teachings, the teachings that were given, the revelation, the precepts of God. Psalm 119 is another Torah psalm, and it just really, um, you know, it expands with that, you know, on that. with, with Oh, amen. Amen. It truly is. Um, Brother Keith? Amen. Amen. So the law of the Lord was life, right? This wasn't something that they lived by to get to, to be justified by God, but it was life itself. It was the revealed will of God to them. God's goodness to them. God's grace to them, you know, in his law. And so that's what we see. That's why you see them delighting in it, meditating it. As you see here in the first Psalm, he is blessed. His delight is in the law of the Lord. That's just incredible how much life he finds in it. And so this practice has an abiding, uh, it has a daily place in our life. Reading God's word is a discipline, right? But it's not the goal, but to delight in God's word. That is the goal. That's really what we want to do, to look to Christ in God's word, to run to him and enjoy fellowship with him through God's word. As Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. Uh, Alan Ross, he says, I've been following some of his commentary. He's a great commentator on, on, on just theological, uh, these, on, on the Psalms here. He says, the spiritual disciplines of meditation according to the Psalter, the Psalter is another name for the book of Psalms, begins with the memorization of divine instruction so that along the way by day, You understand, you you hear that language, Deuteronomy, I think it's Deuteronomy 6 maybe. Uh, So that along the way by day or on the bed at night, one could recall it and think about it. Oh, just meditate on it. And that's what he, that's what we, that's what we see about the psalmist in Psalm 119. He says that thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. What was he doing he was taking the word of god and hiding it in his heart he tucked it away in his soul and he took it wherever he went they were his counselors is what he says and they guided him through all matters of life and faith and righteousness the word of god helped him and it was his light his his lamp uh, and his light and all of these things does anybody have any questions we're okay okay so we need to, so in this psalm what what would it what would it do it would provoke a lot of thought it would provoke a lot of examination and cause you to look inwardly right to look in yourself and then it would cause you to look out of yourself upon Christ that's what this was doing you see psalm 1 looking into yourself psalm 2 looking up to God's Messiah son so it's causing you to look in and it's causing you to look out at the same time and so, one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves, as the, as they did uh, when when they were coming into the temple and opening this psalm, what is your current interaction with the Word of God? They would be asked that question. You would you would you you would be provoked as you would come in this. If you're if you're a saint of God and you're and you, and you have there's distance between you and God, or if you're an unbeliever coming into the house to worship with the saints of God, you would be provoked to think about these things, right? The word would be like a, a dagger that would truly uh, be digging into you as you're reading this. Are you satisfied with your spiritual maturity? Ask yourselves, do you have an interest in love for the word of God? John Piper, he said something uh, recently that uh, to the effect that he says that a loss of interest in the word of God is a loss of interest in God himself. How does one get out of a disinterest and indifference of soul when meditating upon God's word? I think it happens to all of us, right? Where your reading gets dull, where other things take, uh, you know, the the uh, other things take primary or they take, uh, uh, God might take a secondary, you know, focus in your life. What are we to do in those times? Any, uh, I'll just kind of ask you guys, what are we to do in those times? Get on your knees. Pray. Amen. That's what we, we, so it, it, it takes us to this point where you have to, you have to recognize the reality that you're beginning to drift in heart. Your affections are being given to something else. Um, and if you don't know God, then of course, then you're hit with this reality, right? So I'm not talking to you assuming that you're all Christians, but, uh, and and this, and the book isn't doing, isn't doing that either, right? It's speaking to a broad audience of people. And so we recognize the reality that we're beginning to drift in heart, and we have to recognize that we absolutely need, right, this fellowship with God. It is absolutely necessary for our spiritual health. And we have to recognize where that life and vitality comes from. Where does it come from? God. And it comes from God's word, right? That's where life comes from, First 1 Peter 1.23, that we have been born again by the word of God. That's literally what it says. And this is telling us that he meditates here. This is where spiritual strength comes from. His vitality comes from. It all comes from the word of God. And so if you are ever lacking in faith, you shouldn't be discouraged, right? Even the disciples who were walking with Jesus were lacking in faith. And what did they ask him? Give us more faith. faith. Exactly. Lord, increase our faith. And how does faith come? By hearing and hearing by the... Word of God. God just pushes us to His Word to get to know Him, to experience fellowship with Him, and to to deeply just meditate on these things to hide His Word in our hearts. Not just faith to be, not just faith to come into knowledge of God, but to faith to persevere in this life. You need it. You need the Word of God. You need to be driving yourself to the Word of God, and that's what this Psalm is doing. It's driving you to the Word of God and is driving you to the Son of God. Yes, brother.
1: Pretty uh, indicative of what your connection is with the word, because uh, we have a lot of a lot of ministers, quote unquote, that would try to tell you that you know what we can put that on the side, mm. put that on the shelf, and simply talk in a generic sense about about you know s- small g God, mm. uh, such as you know the Andy Stanley situation. Yeah, he he was very proud about the fact that if he starts a new series in church the first two Sundays no bible and he elevates that up so much and and as soon as i hear something like that i immediately hear god is not present.
0: Mm. Amen. So
1: we need to you know we need to really examine that and of course i'm guilty of that as well where where you know drift away from the word just because it does get dry. Mm-hmm. But
0: at a given point in time on whether or not you're connected to the word. amen oh the word comes where your vitality and life comes from that is this it truly is the source of life it says we've been born of God by we've been born again by God's word um and and when we're kept by god's word and and so you should be encouraged by that just even the disciples were needing faith and they went and asked for faith and God gave them faith he promises to do that for us too we have to recognize that we utterly need faith we utterly need life to give us you know that's what christ says and um and that's the difference right god jesus went to the pharisees right and and they're 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 reading the scriptures because they think that in them right they they have life but they neglected who they neglected christ and so you have to put the word of god with god's son you have to couple these things you have to look for you look for god's son in god's word and that is truly the 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 source that the source of our life that you can rejoice in God so if it is the source of your life the word of God you are abundantly blessed he says oh the blessedness is of you that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is yours and what does it mean for the blessed man or woman who is in Christ right verse 3 he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does or she does, prospers. Incredible. So this is what this is what. So the psalmist gives us a metaphorical example uh, or a simile, if you would, as you've seen throughout God's word, that that our spiritual lives are are often uh, uh, compared to uh, the physical life of trees and and things like that. And uh, let's, can someone read Jeremiah 17? You have to read it loudly for me. Jeremiah 17, five through eight. And you can see a similarity in these passages. Who's got a loud voice? Jeremiah 17, five through eight. Keith, you got it? Jeremiah 17, five through eight. <laughs> and look at the, look at the similarities in these verses as you do. And the, um, and the pattern that God uses throughout throughout his word. Nice and loud, Keith. Okay,
1: Thus says the Lord, person is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. But he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes and wilderness. Here it is will
0: a of amen amen you see that similarity incredible this is what God this is what God this is the pattern that God uses or the metaphors that God uses throughout the whole word of God and so in Psalm 1, this is what we see that you are a man or a woman, a tree planted. This is clearly talking about your union. I would say your union with Christ. You're firmly planted in God. And so the next question I would say is, who planted you? Who planted you? What an interesting question, right? Who planted you? <laughs> in Matthew 15:13, I know a lot of you know this verse. It says that Jesus says this, Every tree that my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. Every tree that my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. So it's saying that God is your sovereign planter and nurturer of your salvation. God plants you, and God plants you in, in his son. And so what you can see from this, does anybody have any questions? Cameron? Yeah, what, is, uh, what exactly does it mean uh, Says so he is like a tree planted by the streams of water that
1: yields its fruits and its season. What
0: does season mean? Oh, amen. I'm about to tell you that. Oh, right there. Hold tight, brother. Okay, so 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 look at this. you have a question? No, I, I was going to say that I think we've even
1: discussed it in previous times. But I don't want to steal your thunder because... Steal it, brother. The, it's not mine. Regarding the whole tree <laughs> analogy um, and what we see in terms of the fruit in its ripe season. And we've referenced this a uh, few times in Revelation 2 where... Not, you will have the ability to receive the right again to to partake of the tree mm. and, and being the fruit of that tree, uh, essentially being eternal life.
0: Oh, amen. Amen. And a little, uh, just kind of like a reference to the newness of all things and kind of looking back to the, the garden and God, not just making a new heavens and a new earth, right? But when God... When God saved you, you became new. All things became new. And that's what God does to us. And so but look at this. Look at the look at the abundance of nourishment, right? This is what it says. Not just one stream, but streams, right? Many streams. Uh, John, I'm just going to go here and I'll try to read this for you. John seven thirty seven it says It says this it says that. Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And he spoke this of the Spirit. So your soul should never be dry, right? But hemmed in by the various blood-bought streams and rivers of God's goodness to you, right? That, That all of these things God purchased with his blood and his Spirit is applying them to your soul. By virtue of your union with Christ, right, your you can enjoy rich fellowship with God by, with, by, by God's word, God's spirit, God's grace, his mercies, that every all of these spiritual blessings are yours. And this is what it's saying, that you have an abundance of mercies, an abundance of vitality um, by virtue of your union with Christ. Any questions on that? And so this is what we see, that the word is our foundation. Christ is our vine and our our very source of life. Christ is our life. He says, I came so that you might have life. What he's supposing, right? What's presupposing that is that you are not living, just merely existing. I came so that you might live. And that's what he's saying. Christ is our life. And being united to him, being a branch on that vine, we have life in him. He is our foundation. In order to grow spiritually, we must be connected to him. And this is our union. That's exactly how it happens. And so, another another key aspect of this is that you're not going to grow overnight necessarily, um, as much as you want to grow. But we understand that at this point of salvation, that God never condemns the growth that does happen at this at the point of salvation. That's what it says in Matthew 13:1 through 9, the parable of the sower. He's talking about that at the point of salvation uh there there are um there are different people who will bear fruit of various kinds right some 30 some 60 some hundredfold and so we shouldn't be discouraged about our growth uh um, at, at the point of salvation but more growth is what we should be uh what and more growth is what we should be um uh, striving for and pressing into God for and that's exactly what we see in John 15 that the Father's not casting us out because we're not a hundredfold when we're first saved, right? But He's gently gathering us in. He's cultivating us. That's what He said. He prunes so that you you might bear more fruit. That's just incredible. That's just, this is what the Father's doing. Not only did the Father plant you, but um, but it was the Father's plan to send His Son to save you, and that's what we see. And so this next little part, Brother Cameron, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. I got a great quote from Charles Spurgeon. I was reading the Treasury of the Psalms. He says this. He says that, uh, just kind of leading in, according to the season or need, the believer's fruit is always faithful to spring in its proper time and season. Spurgeon says this, but the man who delights in God's word being taught by it Bringeth forth patience in a time of suffering, faith in the day of trial, and holy joy in the hour of prosperity. Fruitfulness is an essential quality of a gracious man, and that fruitfulness should be seasonable. And so, we know the fruit of the Holy Spirit. What are the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Amen. We have all the fruit, right? I mean, there's a lot of fruit. And these are what we bear in their season, in their time of need. We bear these fruit. They are in every one of them. Every single one of them are in every believer. It's not the fruits of the Holy Spirit as if you could just have one without the other, but the fruit of the Holy Spirit are these things that, yes, brother. That yeah, and that can, mm hmm. Absolutely, yeah. They're they're going to be interrelated. So, like, so God's will for you, right? And and the things that He has predetermined for you to go through the different trials He's setting before you. Those are going to be different seasons that you personally will experience. But he's given you his spirit, right, to bring forth that fruit, which is, which is, which is going to give you strength and the ability to persevere through whatever trial might come. And whatever season you can bear the proper fruit for that season and not the fruit that's improper. Yes, brother.
1: The
0: and that is the key brother if you are delighting in the law of the lord you will bring forth this fruit and i would say you will reap what you sow right you can tell the difference in your own spiritual life. If you're not reading the word of God, what's the kind of fruit that you're going to bear? Minimal, right? I mean, like, there might be life there, but the fruit will be small, right? And, uh, but that's what's always true about Christians is that there is life, though fruit might be small. Um, yes, brother. Uh, what exactly, uh, would you say bearing fruit looks like? I would, I would say, yeah, yeah, amen. Uh, I, I would, I would say that you are to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So bearing fruit is going to be walking according to God's spirit. It means obeying God, joyfully obeying and submitting to God in whatever ways He asks you to, in whatever season that you're in. That you bear forth the proper fruit, and in keeping with repentance. So, so leaving a life of sin, not returning to it. And and so that's going to manifest itself in very different ways. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. Amen. Good question. So the wicked are not so. Verse 4. The wicked are not so. We only have about five minutes left. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Right? So you see that this is a negative description of the wicked, followed by a positive description of the wick- of the wicked in picture form. This is what the Vulgate says it has a double negation. It says in a, in a dreadful, truly a dreadful way, it says, not so the ungodly, not so. Right? So the description of the ungodly uh, uh denies that which is true of the godly. Do they love God's word? Not so the wicked. Not so. Like all those things we just went through. Uh, are they firmly planted by streams of water? Not so the wicked. Not so. Uh, are are there are there leaves never withering not so right their leaves only wither um indeed the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away that's what they are they're useless dry dead, and fruitless that's what you'll see they do not bring forth proper fruit so so that's what we see here in the end the wicked are compared to worse worthless chaff that's a picture of the judgment seat where God is. He is, uh, sifting, uh, the chaff from the grain. What does that look like, right? He takes either, uh, some kind of sifter where he's, they're going to like a, uh, maybe some place that's elevated and they have some kind of sifter or they have, uh, uh, maybe some kind of a rake looking thing and they're throwing the grain and the chaff in the air together in a breezy way. They're throwing it in the air and the wind's taking away the chaff, but the heavier grain is dropping to the floor. That's what it's talking about. It's it's taking it and throwing it, and God is sifting at His threshing floor, and He's separating the chaff from the grain. And that's what we see. This is the this is the picture that He's painting for us here. And so that that should compel us to avoid the counsels and the lifestyles of the ungodly, right? It is useless. It is worthless. And if it's worthless to God, of what value is it to you? What value is it of is it to you? If God says it is truly worthless, it is like chaff that the wind drives away. It won't be kept. It'll be blown away by God's wrath. And we have a couple minutes and we'll, we'll end here. I'm trying to get done as much as I can. Psalm 1 five: Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Right? The therefore is referring to the, Im- the imagery of the chaff that we just talked about. And the reason why the wicked will not stand in the judgment—they will be sifted, they will be separated. That is what the therefore is there for, right? Well, that is that is so. That is it's speaking of their judgment. It's speaking of it is speaking of um, what it is speaking of their ultimate condemnation, where they have to come before God, the final judgment. Uh, that's, that's what it's speaking about. It's, it's, it's terrible because their life has ended and they have to come before God and give an account for how they had previously lived. And so though the wicked will be judged, ultimately they will not be forgiven of their crimes against God. That is an awful thing, is it not? To go to the judgment of God dead in your chest, in your trespasses and sins, coming with your sins marked against you. Oh, what a terrible thing. That's what Psalm 130 says. 130 verse 3 says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who can stand in that judgment if God marks iniquities? Same with Revelation 6.17. It goes on to say, For the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to stand? That's what we're saying. The eternal judge shall render his eternal judgments, which will forever decide the eternal dwelling place of the godly and the ungodly. The Creator of all the earth is your judge, and He will do right. There's no higher court that you can appeal to. Once you come to the courts of heaven, there are no higher courts that you can go to. And when God slams his 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 uh, his gavel, that's thank you. When He slams His gavel, right, the verdict will be final. A great day of despair, right? This is what Jeremiah eight twenty says: that the wicked will say that the harvest is past. The, the summer is ended and we are not saved. Jeremiah 8.20 And so the ungodly will not be found standing on that day. The ungodly will not outlast the great judgment of God. Only the righteous will be able to stand before God in glory. And why is that? Nobody has to whisper. We know the answer to that, right? Put on Christ, right? Because you're standing on the shoulders of God's Son who raises you to life and lifts you to glory by virtue of his life, death, and resurrection on your behalf. And I think that's where we have to end today, brothers and sisters. We'll go ahead and get started, okay? We'll go to worship.